future will be as complex and messy as the present. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> which, which probably isn't helpful. But I mean, I keep thinking to, to 2050 and thinking about, you know, the, the likely climate effects, which, which, which will be which will have significant impact. You know, there's no way of going around that. Mm-hmm. And I think about those worlds and I, and I think about the people in those worlds and I think they'll be doing what we're doing now. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll be arguing about, you know, best ways forward. Um, they'll be constantly frustrated by meal planning and um, schedules and, you know, all of, all of those human things that we, that we do will, will exist. That was Kristen Olford. She's a futurist and the director of the Museum of Discovery, or MOD, in South Australia. She says that MOD's main objective is to showcase innovative research that imagines multiple futures. This idea of imagining multiple futures involves anticipating where society and nature might be headed based on past and current trends. She says that it's about understanding and recognizing opportunities, risks, and downsides and then thinking about the unintended consequences or possible actions that can be taken. In showcasing these futures, Maud hopes to inspire young people to learn more about where technology, ethics, and social issues might be headed so that they can make better decisions for their own futures. When putting together an exhibition, one of Maud's main tenets is for people to leave with a feeling of hope not one of anxiety or depression. Because these are big issues they're tackling. Populating other planets, climate change, the future. Next year, they're opening an exhibition called Broken, about the general feeling of anxiety and ambivalence about the future. In order to instill hope in this exhibition, people are asked a series of questions based on psychologist Charles Snyder's Elements of Hope. Do you have a positive vision of the future that brings you forward? Do you feel positive about that vision? Do you feel like you have agency to make a difference? And are there multiple pathways for you to reach your goal? So here she is, Kristen Olford. Welcome to Chattermarks. A podcast of the Anchorage Museum. Dedicated to exploring Alaska and the Circumpolar North through the creative and critical thinking of ideas. Past, present, and future. My name is Cody Liska. And I'm Dr. Sandro De Bono. I'm a museum thinker from the Mediterranean island of Malta, and I work with museums to help them strategize around possible futures. And we'll be your hosts. In this Chattermark series, We talk to museum directors and knowledge holders about what museums around the world are doing to adapt and react to climate change. On the MOD website, in the section about us, your institution describes itself as a, and I quote, futuristic museum of discovery and a place inspired by the ideas at the intersection of science, art and innovation. Can you tell us a little bit more about this statement? Yes, so MOD sits within the University of South Australia and it has two main aims, which are to showcase research that's happening at our university, but also research and innovation that's happening across the state. And the other thing is to inspire young adults to learn a little bit more about 
where uh, technology and ethics and social issues might be heading for the future so that they can make better decisions for their own futures. So obviously we're at a university, so we're specifically hoping that we can um, help them find the right kind of tertiary study for career paths. But we also want to inspire them to to think more holistically and more critically about about the future that they are inheriting and creating. And so what, what we what we do is we develop exhibits and programs that draw on those aspects of research um, through science, design, art, technology, uh, and and build experiences for young people so that they can better think about the future. Mm-hmm. You are also frequently described as a person who champions futures literacy. Can you tell us what is futures literacy and how this can help us address future challenges? Yes, certainly. So, so as as director of MUD, I bring quite a unique perspective, which is that prior to this role, I ran my own foresight agency, Bridge 8, for about 15 years. And so um, working as a consulting futurist with a Master's of Strategic Foresight um, gave me both the theoretical frameworks on how we might think about the future and also the experience of putting those frameworks into action with a range of clients from, from government and corporate and the not-for-profit sector. And so for me, that experience was really formative in, in setting up MOD because I mean, I think the, the starting point is that thinking about the future seems like it should be easy, but it's actually quite difficult to do well and not just accept the existing narratives about the future that we are we are seeing around us. It requires a certain depth of, of critical thinking. And I find that the, the frameworks and the methodologies and the approaches that sit in the field of future studies incredibly helpful for unpicking some of those future aspects in more depth and... Uh, finding alternatives in a way that otherwise it's it's kind of hard to do, mm. um, and so so my my background as a as a futurist is is really driving a lot of my reflections on how we want to think about our exhibitions and our programs for our young adult audience, um, and then so for me you know the, this idea about you know futures literacy or having a set of capabilities in futures thinking, um, you know I really do. I really do believe that it's important for everybody to have access to those those skills and capabilities, and and so the work that we do is is to is to do that in some way. Um, so I, I mean, if it helps to explain a little bit further, there are a kind of three modes of thinking that I think we want to uh, generate with our audience. And the first one is around being able to anticipate aspects of the future. You know, do you better scan the world and find out what's happening and, and showcasing research is a really useful way of doing that. Uh, the second way is really around being really creative and generating alternatives and generating other possible narratives. And so we want our audience to be playful and, and sort of be immersed in worlds that they can they can think about and they can experience and they can question. And we do a lot of provocations through the gallery. And then that third one is really around being able to envisage or imagine a preferred future um, set goals and feel hopeful about where things are going mm-hmm. so so for me when I think about futures literacy or the trans you know the the set of capabilities and skills it's really about building our exhibitions and our programs so that our audience has the ability to anticipate imagine and act with hope mm-hmm. so in a way um, the role of a futurist is 
is essential for your institution. But uh, within the broader scheme of things, then, I mean, why do you think that we need the work of a of a futurist? I think the interesting thing about the discipline of future studies and the work of uh, of futurists um, coming from the perspective that I'm coming, that is sort of you know drawing on this on this body of of future studies, is that it is really interdisciplinary. And so you're drawing on lots of different aspects. And so, you know, we, you know, for example, we are thinking about technology in our space, but at a, in our gallery at the moment, we have an exhibition that looks at um, pushing the limits of the body and the mind. And one of those exhibits is looking at, at tissue engineering and regenerative medicine and the very forefront of research in that area. Mm-hmm. And then we have another gallery that's devoted to people thinking about the ethics of these technologies. Um, you know, so as a, as a futurist, you're drawing on, multi-disciplines to 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 populate the future all of the time so i think that's that's really critical um the other thing that i think is is critical is the ability to jump time frames so i mean i think um you know the futurist sahel entire in in ayatollah has a tool called the futures triangle which really helps you draw on you know what's happened in the past and what is what is the the patterns of the past that we are bringing forward what's happening in the present what are all of the things that are causing change at the moment and what and what kind of um you know visions for the future that we have that are shaping the way that we act today and i think that's also another really useful kind of lens to be thinking about why why a futurist perspective is important because all of those things create our reality Mm-hmm. And then I think the other thing that that you know the role of the futurist is to do is is to you know and this is why it's sort of uh, you know a focus on foresight and just not futures thinking but it's to it's to actually then take all of those insights and translate them into into action to change the direction of where we're headed um, and so I think you know as a as a futurist you're drawing on tools of being able to you know scan and point to those emerging drivers of of change and communicate you know, the science and the research and the other the other social drivers that are happening, um, trying to sort of get people to think about alternatives from a, from a range of perspectives and all of those different disciplines mm-hmm. and then helping people think through those timeframes to, um, you know, to think about change mm-hmm. really. And I think the, the advantage of a, a futures mindset on change rather than just thinking about a business plan kind of timeframe is that you can sort of bring people out to sort of 20, 50 years into the future, um, that gives you space for, for broader imagining, um, which makes sometimes makes action in the present a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, how do you decide on a subject for an exhibition? I, th- I think we do this in a way that is uh, fairly unusual in that we, we ask our audience so the way that we do this is we is we run a a, a day where we get up to a hundred people in a room, um, and about a quarter of those people are from the education sector. So year ten, eleven, twelve students and teachers, a quarter are from um, the arts sector, so galleries and museums and arts practice. A quarter are researchers from from universities in in South Australia, and then a quarter come from industry and startups and um, and not-for-profit businesses. So they come from quite a diverse range of backgrounds. Mm-hmm. It's first names only. And so um, that means that the, um, 
you're not there's no high there's no hierarchy you know everyone's just first names only at the last one I couldn't tell the difference between one of our year 11 students and a senior economist for a consulting firm mm, okay. um, you know which really which really means that people are coming there bringing their own expertise um, and it's it's not yeah it's not valued any differently from anyone else in the room mm-hmm. and um, we asked them two questions and the two questions are very straightforward it's what do you think is important when we think about the future and what keeps you up at 2 a.m. in deep conversation? Mm-hmm. And then we just run an open space methodology process where we just have that conversation over and over again um, based on the topics that the audience wants to talk about. Um, we're able to, you know, really pick through those conversations and pick out the real nuggets of, of insight. So that, that's what we do. We, we pick through those conversations. We, we bring things together. We look at them in, you know, through different facets. And, and from there, we start to develop a, a group of, of themes that we'd like to explore. And most of those themes, as for invisibility, have multi-dimensions to them. Um, but that's, that's, how we, that's, how we, that's how we do our themes. But it also means that we're talking about things that we know our audience is curious and concerned about. What do you think these conversations reveal about what is important to people? Um, I think I think there's a uh, there's a couple of things that they reveal. I mean, first of all, we we were able to see what's front of mind. Um, you know, so so when when we had the conversation around you know data privacy, for instance, this was a couple of years ago. It was it was sort of still in that um, late late Trump. <laughs> Here in the states, mm-hmm. um, and so you know, thinking about um, social media and data, and um, you know, was kind of front of mind for people. So we're surfacing what's front of mind. The one that we ran um, last year really uh, indicated that people felt that a lot of the systems that we have feel really broken and really ineffective. So there were lots of concerns around. Um, you know what we what we'd call late stage capitalism and the effectiveness of democracy and just feeling like things weren't serving us well. So I think the first thing mm-hmm. they do is they 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 bring up front the the things that are on people's minds right now in the present, and I think that's that's actually really helpful. Um, you know to know that that those are the things that people are concerned and, and anxious about. Um, and then I, I've kind of said the second thing in there anyway, which is they bring up how people feel, you know, mm-hmm. so so yeah. we start mm-hmm. to understand whether people are feeling, you know, really excited or really optimistic about future change or whether they're feeling really concerned and anxious and, um, you know, fearful about what's happening, um, which then allows us to shape our exhibitions in a way that's frankly useful because um, if, if, if we're just reflecting a, a sense of anxiety, it's not going to be very helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, but knowing that there's anxiety allows us to meet people there and then take them on a journey, which, which hopefully brings them to a place which is, which is more proactive and positive. So, yeah, it's a really, really useful process. Um, and, I, and I think it also, because it's sort of cross-generational, it's got a fairly diverse um, range of people in it. It also helps us get like a little snapshot of our community in a way that's that's not not as easy if they were coming in um, as separate visitors. And I wonder how often are you surprised by what is important to people? I mean, that's a really good that's a really good question. So I think, generally speaking, because we're in conversation with our audience a lot anyway, there aren't huge surprises. Uh, our 
floor staff are in conversation with people through the exhibitions all of the time and a lot of that conversation is reported back to us. Uh, we do quite a lot of prototyping um, on the floor and so we get feedback that way. We have a youth board that meets um, every month and so we get feedback from them as well. So we've got these channels coming in all of the time that's that's kind of letting us people letting us know what people are, are thinking about. So mm-hmm. there aren't, you know, I, I suppose that sort of synthesises things along the way so huge surprises aren't there but I guess what surprises us is 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 the things that like at the moment you know I think we're constantly surprised by just how much people are feeling like capitalism isn't working for them mm-hmm. um, you know so you know in Australia we've got a housing affordability crisis there's growing social inequity um, you know post post COVID kind of recovery conversations where there's sort of low unemployment but it's also not necessarily well paid or the hours aren't necessarily good and there's a lot of casual um you know and then on top of that you've got a lot of uh the inequities that come from the difference between frontline workers and people who have you know almost the the luxury of being able to work from home and plan their own days and so there just seems to be mm-hmm. a lot of inequity in work at the moment and inequity in in wealth that is uh, driving a lot of the conversations and it comes up again and again and again. Um, and just just that that notion that there's got to be a better way to distribute collective wealth yeah. seems mm-hmm. to be really, um, really front of mind. And, of course, climate is the other thing that continually comes up. Um, and, you know, at the moment I'm, I'm surprised that it's not coming up more, you know. Okay. So I, I think it's more perhaps the, the volume of... Um, you know, the, the volume of concern in any one direction, that is probably where the surprises come from and how that how that ebbs and flows. Mm-hmm. You know, what's really interesting to me, Kristen, is, you know, some of the things you just brought up are climate change, you know, housing crisis. And I wonder if at any point you thought that a museum would be part of those conversations. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Um, so maybe if I could just explain the exhibition that we're developing for next year because it yeah. really comes out of that Future Themes Forum and people telling us that everything felt broken. Okay. Um, so the exhibition is going to be called Broken. Uh, and what we, because we wanted to meet people where we where they were, but we also didn't want, we don't, I mean, one of our, one of our main tenets as Maud is to not leave, not let people leave feeling anxious and depressed. We want people to leave feeling hopeful. And so the challenge that we put to the team was how do we do an exhibition that recognises that people feel like things are broken but can leave the exhibition feeling hopeful and like there's a, a sense of um, a sense of power that there are other alternatives. Mm-hmm. And so the exhibition has a spine that runs through it, which is a, an interactive where you're asked a series of questions and those series of questions are based on four of the main elements of hope which are, do you have a, a positive vision of the future that brings you forward? Like, is there, a, is there a set goal you're trying to achieve? And also, do you feel positive about it? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third one is, do you feel like you've got agency to make a difference? And the last one is, are there multiple pathways for you to get there? And so what we're, what we're saying to our audiences as you come along and you interrogate these questions, you'll end up with a little bit of a conversation about your answers that demonstrate you as a, uh, a hopeful actor 
in the system and so mm-hmm. you can go away mm-hmm. knowing that there's there's ways for you to make a difference and then the gallery spaces are all based along what if what if provocations and so what we're trying to do there is is give people alternative systems so almost like alternative presence if you like mm-hmm. um, you know so one of the rooms is what if we put nature first um, and it's specifically around you know what if we did city building in a different way like instead of putting the city down and then doing planting back in around the city, what if you looked at the geography of the city? What if you put mm-hmm. nature first and then what if you built around that? And we're using a, mm-hmm. um, a game called Terra Nil that's just been released on the Netflix platform, um, which is a reverse city builder game to kind of demonstrate that that principle. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all of the rooms have like a what if, what if provocation around them. We're looking at nature, we're looking at collaboration, democracy, housing, education. Mm-hmm. But we're also a science and technology museum, right? So, yeah. <laughs> you know, so when I look at, I've been thinking about when I look at that exhibition, you know, that the technology is actually, it's actually all through the exhibition. It's not missing. Mm-hmm. The research is all through the exhibition, not missing. But the framing of this exhibition is is really one of, of economic and social change. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's, you know, that's really, that's a really interesting reflection to sort of think about a new generation of, of science centres, science museums like us that are there to talk about science, technology and, and research. And yet this is the framing that people are talking about. And so for us to come to that conversation, I think is really important. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So um, Kristen, and then how would this exhibition uh, that you have been describing to us uh, differ from the one that is currently on, which is points of impact. I believe it also deals with how artificial superintelligence can come in handy when tackling the world's climate crisis. Can you describe that exhibition for us and how would that differ from your future project? Yeah, certainly. So so I should say we do a couple of different types of exhibitions. So, so Broken and Invisibility that I've just described are both our in-gallery exhibitions and so they run for a full year. Um, but every year we, we change the content. So we don't have a permanent collection or a permanent gallery. It's, um, it's a new exhibition every year in our, in our gallery spaces. Mm-hmm. Point of Impact is a little bit different. It's one of our satellite engagement experiences. And so that includes a small pop-up exhibition that we take to regional areas coupled with an online game or interactive or exhibition. And so Point of Impact was, is, a narr- is an online game. It's a narrative fiction game. That allows you as the as the player to apply artificial intelligence to the to the climate crisis. Hmm. So the the I mean the so the the exhibitions are, are different just because of the nature of where they are, whether they're in our regional areas or, or whether they're in the the main galleries in Adelaide. But I think also just slightly different approaches. So so certainly for our for our satellite engagement pieces, they are designed to be done probably you know, as a, as a single person often coming into a space and, and thinking about things. Um, and, and doing them online allows us to kind of use framings that would be quite difficult to do within the gallery space. So, you know, in that, that game is a short game. It only takes sort of four minutes or so. Okay. Um, but it allows you to, to kind of go through multiple pathways again and again and again <laughs> just mm-hmm. to sort of see what might be what might be might be effective um and for and for that one with this with the with the pop we have two um 
artworks that go with that game. One is called Mirror Ritual by an artist called Nina Ratchik, um, which is a mirror that you look into and it picks up your, uh, it, it has a facial recognition system that picks up the expression on your face, determines what kind of mood you're in. Okay. And then it's been trained on a database of poetry, so it writes you a poem based on the mood that you are in Um, and it's uncanny and (laughs) weird and delightful all at once but it sort of starts to have a conversation around you know what generative ai sort of looks like and the other one is a um a realistic looking head of a young boy that talks to you in a sort of a dreamy kind of voice and that's sort of at the edge of of where robotics might go in the future in terms of how lifelike it could look like and and what it means to kind of confront sort of other images of our of ourselves in that in that context and so for yeah, point of wow, impact we're really looking at some of those those you know very very sharp edge of of uh research and applications of of ai and automation and, and robotics um so it's sort of more more technology led um and the starting point for that exhibition really came again from a from a conversation at one of our future themes forum, and it was really about looking at um, existential risk. Like, what are the big things that really do put human um, existence at risk, and how do we how do we understand that, and how do we mm-hmm. manage that, or how do we how do we confront that? Um, and and so there are aspects of AI that certainly do pose those risks and certainly climate poses those risks. So actually when we were looking at how we would build an example around um, threats, coupling those together seemed to be both interesting um, and also, you know, that high, the highest risk sort of thing that we could, <laughs> we could really think about. And the risk yeah. that was not... Um, not just a not just natural disaster, if you like, but or something that comes from, you know, like a meteor hitting us from from outer space, but actually something that's human generated, that then is risk to humans. That's that's where we really wanted to have that discussion. Um, so yeah, slightly different um, mode of of exhibition, but also slightly different approach in terms of being, um, you know, more technology focused. But I think both of those. Both of those instances, when we're looking at something like broken or something like point of impact, are starting with the conversations that our um, our visitors and our audience are having around, you know, what's important um, and what are some what are some ways in which we can we can sort of start to work through how we how we manage these issues. How much thought gets put into conveying an idea like AI or climate change? from a risk perspective versus an education perspective. What do you mean by risk perspective? You know, the the risks that AI poses and the risks that um, climate change poses. Oh, as I say, versus thinking about what, what those things are and um, learning more about the facts. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Well, in, in a way, we're, we're actually aligning two, two uh, strands of thought, in a way. One is uh, connected to artificial intelligence, which has its risks uh, and challenges. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other one is climate change, which also comes with its fair share of risks and, and challenges. So in a way, um, we're referring to artificial intelligence to address climate change issues. You know? 
Yeah, and and look, I think they're they're both they're both they both have another similarity in that the the conversation around them can is so easily swayed through um, you know perspectives in the media and on on social media for you know for 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 whatever ends. Um, I mean, I think I think for us it's a futures perspective, but which I say you know which is kind of avoiding the question a little bit because it is both of those things, but education on its own for us isn't sufficient. Okay. Um, you know, because we know that telling people around how climate change is happening and the science of climate change hasn't hasn't really at all helped us move the needle on action around climate change. Um, you know, instead we've spent ages kind of debating whether it's real or not. Um, and I, and so for so for me as a, a futurist, the the conversation has to be rooted in a com in a question about you know why do we need to know this and what are we going to do with it so it has to be has to land in a question of action as well mm. um and so when we look at when we look at um i'm just thinking about when we look at some of the stuff that we've done around climate change you know at the moment we've got a long uh, uh a, a set of stairs that go sort of two stories outside the building um leading up to a bridge and we've got markers on those stairs at the moment, which are the climate stripes. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So when you stand at the top of the stairs, you're in 1930. Um, there's a bit more blue up around 1930. And mm -hmm. then as you come down the stairs, you get right down to, you know, 2020. And then you get down to projections for 2030 and 2050. Mm -hmm. And the further you come down, the redder and then the blacker that those temperatures get. And, and those are based on um, the data and the projections for, for Adelaide. And so on one hand, communicating that is is to give people a visual, almost visceral impact of the data so they can they can kind of see it right in front of them. Um, you know, we have a we have a link that people can read to kind of understand how that data is, um, you know, where that data comes from and where those projections come from. But also I think in the in the framing of those steps, when you come down to 2050, there are two options, right? Mm. You know, there is the the worst case IPCC example and the and a, and a slightly better case if we actually act. And so we're giving people a choice of of how they how they would prefer us to act, and therefore what they might need to do to, in order to get there, which is going to be about you know making wise votes. Um, and influence for for government and making wise consumer choices that change um, systems and and all of those sorts of things. So I think you know for me that's both a, an educative piece which sort of explains how climate ch change is affecting temperature, mm -hmm. but there's also an action an action piece inherent in it. And I think when we're looking at you know AI, um, the mirror ritual is a is a perfect example. You know by unpicking you know, you have this experience and you go, this experience is really weird. <laughs> it's, you know, and it, I mean, it is really weird. It often gives people um, poems that, that really resonate in very kind of specific ways, which is, which is really unnerving. Um, and then you kind of unpick how it works. And then you kind of understand because it is unnerving, that leads to a conversation around, well, if we're thinking about the application of AI, what data would it be using? Yeah. We think about all of the data points that we have on each of us and then kind of come to understand that that actually these things can be very specific and therefore quite 
unnerving, whether we sign up for them or not, there is data around us. Um, and so that, that becomes, you know, for, for invisibility, it, it became a really good conversation around around those data privacy issues and where your data is and how it how it is used and who it is used by others and, and some of the risks around misuse um, of data, but also some mm-hmm. of the risks around AI that's based on, you know, faulty data or incomplete data or, or biased data. So it becomes both, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, from a futures perspective, it, it really is understanding what, what something is and then understanding both what the opportunities around the application of those um, you know those technologies or those those challenges are, and also understanding the, the the risks and the and the downsides, and and then furthermore trying to also think about the un- unintended consequences or the possible actions that we might not have thought of yet as well. Mm-hmm. I wonder how do you feel personally about artificial intelligence? Is it you know, a new piece of technology that we just need to better understand? Or is there fear surrounding the idea? Um, such a It's such a really interesting question because I think, you know, things have changed so much in six months. Um, you know, I read an article this morning that said 30% of Australians are using chat GPT regularly. You know, that's 30% of Australians within, what, six months, 12 months of of that that type of technology being available to people, and it's still mm-hmm. in very much its its early form, um, and so I think a lot of those use cases are really practical and really helpful and really important um, because they're they're saving a lot of time on you know a lot of that sort of push through drudgery, <laughs> um, yeah. which should then free up time for us to be more more creative. And so you know mm-hmm. the use case in the in the paper this morning was talking about families using it for meal planning and, and better health. Mm. You know, and that's that's great. It saves mm-hmm. it saves parents a heap of time. It also probably promotes health. Um, and I think that's a really good use case. But I you know I also wonder I I I did that for myself for a couple of weeks and and I just thought that the recipes that I'm getting are very I don't know, they didn't feel very Australian. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know, they felt there was a lot of um beans and rice and a lot of um you know vegetable curry and it felt very kind of bland and um could be anywhere okay like it had lost the specificity of being seasonally related to what was happening in my town at the moment mm-hmm. or appreciating like a, a mix of flavors that i see as as particularly um australian i suppose mm, interesting um, yeah in their in their freshness and their asian influence it was just kind of missing that that nuance and it was it was fine as a workhorse to give me five meals that was going to meet my calorific requirements and but it had kind of lost the magic mm. um and i i feel like that would be my fear that we that we somehow lose the magic and i keep getting stuck on this concept of peak searchability that somehow we've now reached peak searchability and, and mm. now from now on you won't be able to find anything properly on the internet i mean already it's difficult right because there's so much sort of that's a wash with seo and spam content to try and game search engines and a lot of that a lot of that content is is to get views for, for something that's completely irrelevant to what you're searching for so it's mm. not yeah um, it's already hard but but when all of that seo content becomes ai generated as well 
where it's 80% true, so mm-hmm. it feels true. Yeah. I think it's going to be really difficult to then be able to work out what's what's genuinely true and what's 80% true. Mm-hmm. And then I also think that we lose the capacity for that for that real mm-hmm. magic um, and that stuff that locates us in place and the stuff that is completely new, you know, profoundly novel or innovative because because AI is only as good as what it's trained on. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, I th- and I think we we will mistake remixing for novelty, mm-hmm. um, which isn't to say that there isn't a place for that at all. But I yeah, those those are my fears that we we kind we're kind of moving towards a, you know, certainly in terms of culture um a bland a blandness and a murkiness that that doesn't really thrill me Mm. i think in other applications then you know it could be really interesting i think if we're looking at healthcare and we're looking at the ability to run through you know huge data sets and lots of information very quickly i think you know the timeliness and the and the breadth of of some of that analysis work um is really exciting i you know i think in in some of the you know the the information processing work. Some of that is is exciting if it if it helps us get to understanding faster. But mm-hmm. you know, my my personal experience is mostly as a consumer, and I I worry about <laughs> I worry about the the blandness. Mm. <laughs> is it something which has to do with a potential loss of of identity or the uniqueness of of identity? Yeah, I mean, I I I can. I mean, I I have not used it. I have not used something like ChatGPT a lot, um, so it's not it's not like I'm um, I'm not one of the new wave of self-proclaimed LinkedIn ChatGPT experts. Okay, <laughs> um, but I find it's I just find you can spot you can spot text that's been written by ChatGPT yeah. very quickly mm-hmm. within the first couple of sentences, and I just find myself not reading any further. Hmm. Um, because I almost feel instinctually that that this isn't going to grab me, and there's going to be nothing new here, you know. So um, I th- I think there is is yeah there is there is something that's a little bit disheartening about it, and there is a there is a magic to you know to human creativity. Yeah. Um, you know, and I just saw I saw something recently which, which was you know a bunch of mid journey generated. Um, images and they were they were delightful and they were interesting but but then there was the idea that it generated them was more interesting than the imagery mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so that's that's the bit that I think we have to be kind of a little bit protective of mm-hmm. um, you know so using chat GPT to generate a whole lot of um, you know analysis and and um, is is I think quite 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 useful using mid journey to prototype and test and, and generate um, alternatives is quite useful mm-hmm. um, but it's the idea behind them that that is the you know that is the magic bit and I think that's the bit we we want to be careful about
So in a way, if we bring uh, back uh, climate change into the conversation, I would say that uh, um, artificial intelligence can help in a way, but it could also be a challenge. I mean, it might not work uh, in all in all circumstances. Then is that the case? I mean, how can uh, artificial super intelligence? Um, I think one of the narrative threads in point of, in the point of impact game is is sort of sums it up for me. You know, this this particular narrative tells the story of you know you you release an artificial intelligence on the internet to work out what to do with climate change, um, and it tells you exactly what we've known to do about climate change for the last thirty years. Mm-hmm. You know, because that's that's actually true. That's not knowing no, what yeah, to do yeah, isn't yeah. necessarily making us do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I think there is that that ability to process large amounts of information. I mean, if you think about all of the sensing um, and all of the all of the information around uh, adoption of renewable technologies and changing energy mixes and all of that sort of stuff that's that's happening around the world, then being able to apply, you know, some fast um, data analysis and learning models to to what's happening and what's working could be really useful, um, and and you know might help us tell some tell some different stories. But um, it's it's not it's not sufficient. It's not like you can just run a run a bot over the internet on on climate and suddenly we'll be there. And I mean I think that's the other challenge, right? Because we know that actually the to to run this requires huge amounts of water and huge amounts of energy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so some of the some of the future scenarios that people have been playing with kind of kind of see a stop to AI because it's just it's just not environmentally sustainable either. Um, but for most people, that's invisible. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, like a lot of a lot of our energy use, it's it's invisible. We don't we don't think twice about it. But I was talking to someone the other day who who now doesn't use it because she knows that it's you know you know x hundreds of liters of water to run a to run an inquiry and she's like I'm just not sure I'm getting the the value hmm. um, which kind of comes back to our to our risk sort of risk benefit conversation earlier mm-hmm. um, and things not being as straightforward <laughs> in a complex world you know we there are all of these perspectives that are useful to take yeah and I think that we're at a point with artificial intelligence right now where it's very early you know these these programs being run are, they're not sentient. They're not conscious. They're not uh, behaving like a free thinking human. They're behaving based on a formula that's been given to them. And I think maybe some of the fear comes from what happens when these things become sentient, when they do, you know, become conscious. Yeah. Or what happens when we become not so conscious yeah okay i mean and i don't yeah. mean that in kind of a, a technical way but you know if you, if you think kind of around the you know you know so, some of the conversation around just that that you know the the politics and the the way that sort of social media sentiment sort of sweeps over people and that we are quite mimetic mm. um you know we 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 often don't have original ideas. Our ideas are shaped by the people around us and the things that we read, and mm-hmm. um, you know. So, so, so yes, there is a there is a danger or a possibility. I mean, I don't even know if it's a danger yet. A danger that um, AI becomes more more creative and self thinking. Mm-hmm. 
but there's also a danger that we become less less so mm-hmm. um and so i think you know it's a good it's a good question i think to really interrogate what it what it really does mean to be human and what and what is um special or unique about the human experience mm-hmm what kinds of issues and problems do you see Australia having to face in 50 years? Uh, you know, climate's got to be number one. Um, you know, we're already hottest, driest continent on the planet, so that's going to just get worse. Um, and so, so you know, we, our population is sort of clinging clinging to the coast, and then if you've got sea level rise, there's a, there's another complication. So, you know, the the environment we live in in this country has um, you know, since since European settlement has always been a challenge, and I and I think that will continue to to be so. Um, and you know, I think there is sort of this feeling like the next fifty years are going to be pretty terrible, but after that, hopefully, we'll start to see a slow improvement for the next two hundred. Okay, okay. <laughs> so that's a long time to kind of keep people engaged and keep people, um, you know, resilient. I suppose in the in the face of what are going to be some big environmental challenges. Yeah. Um, I think for Australia also, um, and and uh, you know not just not just Australia, but but rethinking, um, rethinking First Nations relationships and knowledge systems, and how that fits into, um, you know, a, a sort of a, a capitalist sort of world, where one of the main differences is. Our relationship to the environmental system, you know, in, in our democratic capitalist societies, those are the environment is seen as a resource for us to use. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's that's just not the way that it is seen in a in a in a First Nations or an alternative knowledge system. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I I think grappling with how we take um, both of those knowledge systems and and come up with a a new shared understanding of our place in the world is going to be quite important. Mm-hmm. Um, that speaks to the environmental challenges, but it also speaks mm-hmm. to, you know, being able to be inclusive of different ways of thinking. And I think that's probably a, you know, a, a people a people challenge as much as anything. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm less, I, I guess I'm less, not less excited, but the technology challenges don't seem to be as, as um, kind of as as high up in my in my head as some of the other ones. Like I think for me they seem very iterative. Um, you know, so even artificial intelligence seems to be an iteration of um, you know collective data through social media and mm-hmm. um, better computing power and even quantum computing just seems like it will do things faster and cleaner, mm-hmm. which then opens up lots of opportunities. But I think for me the the what opportunities is the is the question. So I guess I'm, I'm, I probably do think of technology more as an enabler than a, um, than a driver at this point, but mm-hmm. you know, it has been a driver of enormous change. So I'm not, I'm not quite sure why I've, <laughs> I think like that. Maybe it's just because that's where, that's where my head is at in the sorts of exhibitions mm-hmm. we're mm-hmm. planning at the moment. So would you then consider that, uh, some of the, some of the possible solutions uh, with regards to to you know climate change and climate change action, could be in indigenous knowledge. Uh, could you think that indigenous knowledge can give us some of the some of the possible answers that we are all looking for? 
Yeah, I mean, I and I would say um, I, th I think this is a really challenging question because I think there is a tendency for us to go, oh, you know, we feel like we've got it wrong in the Western way of thinking and then tend to romanticise alternatives and, and that's that's not the way that I feel. I feel like it's actually being able to integrate both okay mm -hmm. <laughs> you know so you know the the value that we have at mod is talks about being two-way minded mm -hmm. um and and to me that is being able to bring both western and aboriginal ways of knowing to the fore um and using both so so that's i guess that's that's the, that's the first statement that's where i where i come from that but at the moment obviously we don't prioritize first nations knowledges and so i think there is a there is a big a big shift that's happening certainly in in many countries and we're mm -hmm. sort of seeing the the start of this in australia which is starting to really prioritize first nations knowledges um and i think that's a really useful thing um you know for for us when we think about mod you know we're on ghana yata which is ghana country um that stretches sort of around the metropolitan area knowing that you're on Ghana country and knowing that there is a you know a 60,000 year relationship to to that land and to mm -hmm. continuing culture within that land is not is not something that coming in as a more recent settler I mean there's got to be other knowledge there that's that connects you to being in that place mm -hmm. um and I think that that connection to to place and connection to the environment and understanding, you know, the multiple layers and levels of of complex interaction is really helpful. Um, I think thinking about time in different ways um, rather than sort of a linear idea of progress is really important for the types of issues that we're facing. Uh -huh. um, and so one of the things that we try and do for our audience is work, uh, work with Aboriginal artists and creators and communities to create experiences of First Nations knowledge to bring those into the into the dialogue in a much more visible visible way. So you know, I think um, yeah, I think I I just think it's incredibly important um, to be mindful of of those different knowledge bases and being able to draw on different knowledge bases and then and then being able to kind of rethink our relationship with with place and with each other mm -hmm. um in a way mm -hmm. that isn't it isn't prioritized under under the current kind of um you know democratic capitalist systems that we that we have which tend to be more individually focused in your experience how have you seen australians take to the idea of adopting indigenous knowledge, um, I think there has been enormous, enormous movement in the last five years. So we're currently coming up to a very important national referendum, um, which looks at the Australian Constitution and asks: Should there be a, a voice of Aboriginal people to Parliament, okay. which would be an advisory voice um, looking at at being able to advise Parliament on the issues that they're considering and what that means for Aboriginal people as a way of of um, recognizing the continuing culture mm -hmm. um recognizing that there were there were people here before white settlement and and recognizing that colonization has had um enormous ill effects on on that group of people and it's mm -hmm. you know it's tricky there's a lot of racist conversation in the media mm. um 
but I think most most Australians come to an appreciation that that settlement has brought incredible disadvantage. And if we think about the the actual truth of what that looked like over the last two hundred years, we we can do better, mm-hmm. um, and we need to recognise that injustice and the violence, and actually come to a better way of of working together. And I think when you put that in a global context, just because of the enormous global mobility of people, um, you know, we have to find ways of of working. <laughs> you know, working together yeah, um, yeah. for people who have always had long connections to land and for people who are more recent settlers. We're, we're going to have to find better ways of, of thinking about that because there's going to be more global mobility with climate change, not less. Um, so I think I think overall, I mean, I've, I've just noticed in the last five years the um, visibility of Aboriginal languages is much higher, um, the understanding of what it means to be connected to country is much higher, um, the understanding of of continuing culture as opposed to culture that's somehow sort of preserved or um, you know kept in collections is is feels more active, um, and there's a you know a growing kind of I'm not oh, curiosity is kind of the wrong word but a a growing sense of empathy or um, willingness to engage in a in a culture that feels different as opposed to um, you know, it being out of sight. Mm-hmm. And so I think those things are really important for Australia as a country. We're a long way behind, you know, it hasn't, you know, hasn't been done well at all ever. Um, and so, you know, I think a lot of us are still finding our finding our feet in that and trying to find the best way to kind of approach it. And there's still a long way to go in terms of equity for, for First Nations people. Mm. And I, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm cautious, cautious that you don't want, you don't want another round of, of, of kind of, oh, you know, these these First Nations knowledges are, are really interesting. We'll just take those on, and we'll we'll now commercialize mm-hmm. them. We'll now yeah. put them back into our Western system. Okay, you know, in turn recolonizing. You, you, I actually really do want us to to want us approach this in a in a way that is shared mm. shared knowledge and shared perspective and 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 being together in that rather than us just taking on Indigenous knowledges and, um, you know. Using using them like we do with with other with other parts of our system. What does that shared perspective look like? I mean, for for us, it um, you know, there's a there's a phrase that Aboriginal people often use when they're when they're looking at decision making, which is you know nothing about us without us. Okay, and so um, I think. For me, that's always back of our mind when we're doing things. So sometimes the work that we do in MOD might not be very visible and it's not visible because we don't have those community relationships. Um, so, and, I, you know, I, I don't want to just put things up in the space without having a, a better sense of having worked with Aboriginal people on what we're, on what we're doing. And so it's a, mm. um, and also I'm mindful of people's time and, the sorts of priorities that they've got. So again, I don't, I don't want to force relationships. Mm-hmm. We want them to be genuine, and we want them to be valuable. And so it's a long process. It's not a, it's not a short term fix for us. Um, so what it looks like for us is, um, 
feeling like there is a sense of connection to place. And so in the gallery space, we do have um, a work by Carl Telfer, who's a senior custodian for the Ghana people, which talks about the Ghana seasons. And so that when visitors come in, there is this sense of, of, of being connected to Aboriginal knowledges through the through the local seasons, but also feeling like you are connected to being on country and you are in place. Mm-hmm. We want language to be visible. You know, so South Australia alone has 44 different language groups. Um, so at the moment we've got three languages visible um, in the exhibition um, and we want those to be, again, meaningful and authentic language connections, not 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 just words not just words we want those to be authentic and meaningful to the exhibits that are on display yeah um it means having aboriginal people present in the space so that for us at the moment is um certainly there's a couple of sound works that we've got uh storytelling and meditations um by aboriginal people so the voices are 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 evident in the space um and it also then you know means showcasing um, you know, again, a range of artists and researchers that we're working with and making sure that we've got Aboriginal representation in the in the work that we're doing. Um, then the final thing is making sure that, you know, if we go back to what we talked about, is making sure that we've got that um, representation not just of people but also the, of knowledge systems. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that one's a bit harder. Yes. You know? It's a little bit harder to do. But there so. are different ways of thinking, you know, in t- as a, you know, I've, I've talked about different ways of thinking in terms of um, being part of a system and thinking about time differently. So just, just also trying, attempting to try and do um, some of that, some of that work in the space as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we, you know, we think we're doing it okay. And then we realize that we're really not, um, you know, it, it, and it's not through lack of intent, um, but it is. It does really require all of us to have a different mindset, um, and it requires us to unlearn and relearn mm-hmm. to be able to do both of those things, both of those ways of of thinking at once, um, and to bring forward that shared approach. And it's not it's not instinctual. So um, you know that that's why I um, that's why I think it's a long some of the stuff is easy to do very quickly, but I think the real authentic, meaningful stuff is is long term. It takes a while mm-hmm. um, to do to do properly. So something we're something we're still working with. I think we you know we would find that we have falling short of our expect our own expectations <laughs> at the moment. But um, you know it's a journey, it's a journey to keep keep moving forward on. Mm-hmm. And certainly, I think you know the the voice to parliament is essential. Um, because that that to me speaks about having a having a two way minded way of approaching approaching the world. Mm-hmm. So, um, in an interview featured on Arts Hub in twenty twenty two, Kristen, you made a very interesting point, and I quote: "Futurists always talk about there being multiple futures, and that the future is uncharted and uncertain." But when you speak to historians, they talk very similarly about the past. And I thought this was very interesting. Do you think that the past is therefore uncharted and uncertain? Uh, I I mean, I do. I do definitely. Um, 
I mean, I think, I mean, part of, I don't know what I was thinking when I, particularly when I, when I, when I said that, but, um, you know, one of, one of the things that is just, you know, me, I'm just conscious I'm not a historian, so I'm not even sure what current historical practice looks like. And I suspect it doesn't look like the history lessons that I did during school. But when, when a lot of our history is based upon, um, you know, written artifacts and we know you know already that that women aren't the writers of that nor are they mentioned in that mm -hmm. that lgbtiq people or queer people's written artifacts were often erased you just you just you have to know that there are there are whole perspectives missing out of out of what is in the written record um you know and i think some of our material cultures work that that looks at um you know the, the archaeology of artifacts again is is missing is missing a whole lot of that um, that story as well. And we're we're, um, we're we're going based on what we can what we can see and detect, but it's not it's not going to be the real story. And I think the other thing that you know we know about the present, for instance, is that you know your experience of the present is is really different to my experience of the present. Mm -hmm. You know True. we have we have different you know we're, we're located in different places we have different privileges we have different access we have different levels of education all of those things go to being expressed as you know a different experience of what 2023 looks like mm -hmm. um and so if you if if we think about that kind of in the past and the future the past and the future are equally complex and equally diverse i think in terms of experiences of those worlds mm -hmm. so we do have these huge historical markers obviously um that can be seen as 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 major upsets or major change um but even those are are swayed towards the you know the artifacts or the or the material that's available to to talk about them so um I think it's helpful to just recognize that there are hidden stories and mm -hmm. um, unknowns about the past as much as there there are around the future. So would that be about about bias or a more Eurocentric or Western, I would say, perspective of looking at at the past, of reading the past, of understanding and writing the past? Yeah, I mean, some 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 bias, or you know, and or it's perspective. You know, it's perspective of the person who's writing, and it's valid for them. It's just that it's not the only perspective. I think that's the that's the key thing. There isn't there isn't like a you know, we talk about a, a canon of of work that kind of makes the markers meaningful. But you know, the the Great Fire in London, for instance, has very little meaning for people who were living on the Australian continent at the time. Indeed, indeed. You know, whereas for people living on the Australian continent, it might be, you know, the weather changes that saw sea level rise 7,000 years ago are, are kind of the markers or, you know, there were these big shifts in Australian culture 7,000 years ago. So, and you wouldn't see that in the in the European record, which isn't to say yeah. that the European record is wrong either. You know, like okay. I think having a bias or having a perspective that is from that sense is absolutely valid. True, mm -hmm. um, but I, but there are lots of unknown stories and lots of lots of things that aren't aren't recorded or aren't understood and may never be. And I think having being uncomfortable with that level of ambiguity um, is is kind of critical for us. 
at any at any stage and I think also you know that's critical for us now as we're questioning things and asking what else don't we know and who else isn't here and being able mm-hmm. to appreciate that we, we will never get a fully whole picture there will always be ambiguity there will always be things missing somebody will always have the right to hide <laughs> you know like um <laughs> okay. these, you know this 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 i think is important you know we we try to sort of you know hope that maybe ai will capture everything for us and we will know everything um but i think it's i think it's more admirable to be comfortable with the ambiguity and to be comfortable with the not knowing mm-hmm. um and to appreciate that there are there are some things beyond knowing and and that that's okay as well what do you feel like you're personally comfortable with not knowing um uh, i mean i i'm laughing to myself a little bit because my mother and i have this uh, agreement that for us the idea of the afterlife is a giant library where you can go and look up all the things that you wanted to know but couldn't find out <laughs> <laughs> that's great i like that <laughs> and so it's cool so there's it's a lot cool. of things that i'm i'm okay with not knowing because i feel like maybe i'll look them up later <laughs> yeah um ah uh, what am i what am i comfortable with not knowing I mean, I'm actually, I'm actually kind of comfortable with with, with not knowing what the future is going to be like. I'm I'm happy with that ambiguity um, because it suggests space for change, and I'm happy with the ambiguity of the past because it suggests space for discovery and and remaking and reinterpretation. So, mm-hmm. so that little bit of um, or that, or that grayness that exists there of of not really being able to know or understand is um, is fine. Um, I would really like to understand quantum physics. Mm. I'm not happy about not really knowing that because <laughs> um, every time I read it, it, it just it, it just feels like it doesn't get into my head. There are some things that I wish I okay. I knew better but those things almost feel knowable you know and if and yeah. i could if i spent the time and if it, i could know them whereas the things that aren't knowable I'm, I'm kind of happy with them not being knowable and being able to sort of question them and interrogate them and 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 play around the edges of them without necessarily feeling like i need to get to the answer yeah yeah i can agree with you on quantum physics i picked up a book a while back. It wasn't a big book. It was a pretty small book, actually, that uh, was an intro to quantum physics. And I got to tell you, I haven't read a book in a long time that gave me such a headache trying to understand. <laughs> I could only probably read half a chapter at a time. And yeah, I, I think I just came to the conclusion that I'm comfortable not knowing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. As I said, I think people have just told me it'll make things faster and cleaner. And I'm like, okay, that's good. (laughs) I think you've made me very comfortable. Uh, I don't think to, um, I, I don't think I need to, to look for any, any books uh, about quantum physics. I think you've, (laughs) you've convinced me there. (laughs) You know, earlier you used this word useful to describe an exhibition. What does a useful exhibition look like? Oh, that's funny. Um, I, I think a useful exhibition is something that meets the purpose of why we're, why we're doing it. So I'm, I'm re- I, just, 
I did a leadership quiz this morning um, that somebody had posted on Facebook and um, I was like, oh, yeah, I really am motivated when something is useful, mm-hmm. you know, when there's a purpose to it and there's a goal and that is met. Um, and, you know, so so for us, the, you know, the goal of doing things at MOD is to inspire young people. It's to help people navigate their future. Um, it's to provide meaning-making that is can be adopted and, and then acted on to create change. Mm-hmm. So for me, that's what that's what a useful exhibition is. It's something that, you know, if I think about the last kind of three, you know, like, as I said, last year's exhibition was called Invisibility um, and it was really about surfacing, surfacing ideas um, of things that do feel invisible. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the purpose of that really was to get people to just notice things and start to have some different conversations. And so... The fact that people had different conversations about the works meant, meant it was useful. Um, this year's exhibition, Flex, is all about pushing the limits of the body and the mind. As I said, it's looking at, um, you know, tissue engineering and, and ideas about pain and perception and creativity and resilience. Um, and I think for this one it's it's useful if people leave knowing a little bit more about the research that's happening and the breadth of research is happening. Um but also the 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 crux of that is doing that in a context which is also asking us about the ethics. Um, and so for me, the usefulness of this exhibition is is kind of say, yes, we're pushing the limits, but who sets those limits? Mm-hmm. And how do you feel about these limits? And how do we ask about? So it's really around have we landed the the awareness of of ethical questioning and are people getting better at at ethical questioning around some of this stuff Mm -hmm. um and next year's exhibition broken will be useful if we give people the ingredients to be more hopeful like that's that's the gist of it um can they imagine alternatives um different pathways can they feel like they've got agency can they see a positive future that they want to move towards then then i know we've done our done our job it's a it's a it's a useful exhibition then yeah yeah mm-hmm. so i think it's very much very much being sort of purpose and purpose driven you know i'm constantly surprised at the emergence of purpose driven businesses because you know I, I i kind of have to stop myself and ask well why are you, why are you doing it if it if it's not for a purpose mm-hmm. um <laughs> you know that, that thing is just so strong so strong for me to make sure that we are actually making a difference so do you feel comfortable that MOD is contributing to, to systemic change with regard to thinking about climate change, for example, and other issues that are futures oriented? Are we making a difference on climate change? Um, I think is a, is a really pointy question where I would, I would hand on heart say I'm not sure that we are. Like I think each of our exhibitions often often talks to climate change because it's an issue that you absolutely have to be in dialogue with if you're thinking about the future. Um, I hope we're educating, um, but I also don't want to add to the sense of anxiety and mm-hmm. uh, you know feelings of being kind of overwhelmed and almost paralysed that that young people. Uh, sharing I don't um, I you know which again is why you know we we did an exhibition called it's complicated a couple of years ago which was an exhibition around you know complex environmental systems and climate change it was a way Mm -hmm. of talking about climate change without moving people straight to a feeling of despair 
Mm-hmm. You know, we wanted to be able to have have sort of conversations that didn't keep people in despair. So I don't know if we're making a difference around around that. I hope I hope that the conversations around futures thinking and hope and the way that we can maybe think about change are having those impacts for people where they where they're going away not feeling um not feeling anxious and despairing about climate change but I I don't think we're having you know a direct impact on on climate change I think that's that's too that's too much of a of a step mm. um are we having a difference in terms of young people's own lives I can say yes definitely Definitely, we've got some really nice stories of young people coming back to us being inspired by something they've seen and then, you know, doing school projects or changing career outcomes or um, changing the types of conversations they're having with with their friends because of the stuff that we've seen. So on an individual level, I think we are creating that that positive change for people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we're creating positive change around... Um, those ethical conversations and getting people to 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 start to prioritize yeah quick questioning and and thinking about ethics of emerging technologies and and what we're doing there as well so i think i think we are having a a difference to you know and i i could i could easily say there are you know probably several hundred people now that are consciously thinking about that because of the work that we've that we've done um and hopefully more. We get about sixty to eighty thousand people through a year, um, and so hopefully we're, we're making dif- and most of those are new visitors. So hopefully okay. we're making a difference to the mindsets of people that come through. But I and I think if we're thinking about First Nations mm-hmm. and the two minded conversation that we're having, I think I think we have made a difference there by presenting Aboriginal culture as something that's continuing and contemporary. Um, you know, we're using technology to tell stories, and it's. Um, you know, certainly when we started, it was a it was a slightly different approach, mm-hmm. but we've got more work to do to to keep that momentum. Mm. But the climate climate one's a hard one, I think. Um, I think it's yeah, I think it's really difficult. But in a way, I mean, it is about small steps that I mean that are also contributing to to systemic change in the way. Uh, your your young audiences are thinking and their and and their perspective on on issues that you bring up uh, in your exhibitions program so in a way perhaps it's not about addressing the bigger picture but even just by small systemic steps or actions museums can actually achieve um, change or contribute to change is is that something that that Modi that that you know that mod is 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 also doing then? I mean, we yeah we we definitely we definitely think we're 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 helping in the in the systemic change overall <laughs> um, because of those things that I said earlier because we are helping people see things that they might not be familiar with because we are showing them pathways that they might not have considered because we are uh, you know asking provoking questions and we're trying to get people to think about the ethics of things um and to understand systems is the other is the other thing and to recognize that you know system level change isn't 
the result of one thing, but the result of of many things. I think all of those things are really critical, and and in that way, in that way, we do make a difference. I mean, the other thing is, are we making things worse? Mm. Um, so you know, you know, we're part of a larger organization, so you know, choices around you know specific energy use is is guided by the larger organization. Um, but we are advocating for change. Um, you know, we are being mindful about the the types of materials that we use and the reusability of them, and um, you know, so in 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 that way, we are also trying not to make a not to make things worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I think that's that's also a you know that's that's also useful because Indeed. because the you know if you think about the museum sector as a whole. Um, you know, and I think this is, you know, some of the conversations that that we've had in other other forums. You know, by by changing practices and by changing our approaches, we we can also stop from making things worse as well. Mm-hmm. Do you have any future anticipations or future possibilities that you're relatively certain about? Um, my, my, my first and most obvious one is that the future will be as complex and messy as the present, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> which, which probably isn't helpful, but I mean, I keep thinking till to 2050 and thinking about, you know, the, the likely climate effects, which, which, which will be, which will have significant impact. You know, there's no way of going around that. Mm-hmm. And I think about those worlds and I, and I think about the people in those worlds and I think they'll be doing what we're doing now. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll be arguing about, you know, best ways forward. Um, they'll be constantly frustrated by meal planning and um, schedules and, you know, all of all of those human things that we that we do will will exist. Yeah, yeah. Um, more of the and same. And I think, thing. you know, Richard Slaughter, who's a Queensland futurist um, in Australia, has a has a list of questions um, for trying to, to anticipate the future. And one of those questions is what do you think will continue? And actually when you ask that question, you know, the, the nature of, of sort of how we live and play, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that haven't changed in the last 50 years. So I think there's a lot of things that, that we would see being taken forward. Um, and that, you know, also things come in cycles, you know, so, Mm -hmm. um, you know, as we start to, so we'll see, we'll see changes in technology, but at the same time, we're seeing further uptake of technology. We'll see aspects of communities that, that have had enough and slow down. Um, you know, we'll, we'll see uh, moves towards greater inclusion and then we'll see moves towards, you know, reassessing ourselves and reassessing identity. Um, there'll always sort of be geopolitical, um, you know, tensions as, as people kind of question resources and identity and all of those sorts of things mm-hmm. um so so that's that's a cheats way of saying i i just think it will be as complex as now um <laughs> you know we'll just we'll, we'll but i think the 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 nice thing about that is is that um you know that people will persevere yeah um and you know that the problems that we will have in the next sort of 20 years or so um, people will be trying to solve them still, um, and people will be trying to do, you know, what's best, what's best for them, and then hopefully we get a bit wiser at doing what's best for us collectively as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Kristen, those are all the questions we have for you. You know, I want to thank you for spending this time with us, and 
Also, thank you for such a wonderful conversation. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Oh, thank you for the questions. Some of those are really hard. <laughs> um, you know, and I think I think about going back to my team saying, you know, are we doing are we doing all we can on climate and let's get better at, at, at being, you know, two way minded in our own in our own work and the work that we do with others, I think are really, really useful reflections and yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to be able to take those back to back to work with me as well. For more information about the Anchorage Museum, visit anchoragemuseum.org. This podcast was produced by me, Cody Liska, for the Anchorage Museum, with additional help from Julie Decker. Chattermark's music is produced by Keys Open Doors. 